Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Hi, this is John Spear with Greenlight Guru, and as always, thank you so much for listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. A couple of weeks ago, Mike Drews and I sat down and talked about a policy that was suggested by HHS before the changeover in administrations that impacted the medical device industry. Now, we're going to go ahead and share that podcast with you all, but there has been some updates on this particular topic since we recorded that. Sounds like FDA has stepped in in a good way and intervened some way. So I think there's still a little bit more that's going to happen on this topic. However, I think that the initial proposal is going to be quite a bit less than what was originally proposed. And I think, uh, in my opinion anyway, this is probably a good move from the FDA. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. On this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, familiar voice and hopefully now familiar face, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences joins me. We talk a little bit about this proposal that came out from HHS toward the the middle part of January regarding down-classifying and exempting something like 80-some devices or device types, including things like exam gloves, but also things like uh, infusion pumps and ventilators. And we talk about the pros and cons and some of the, the details and the nuances behind such a proposal. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder, I agree that Guru John Spear, and joining me, familiar voice and I guess face now to the Global Medical Device Podcast is Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. So Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. Well, as we're recording this, I mean, we're, we're into the second quarter calendar year, 2021. Obviously, a few months ago, there was a new administration that took office here in the United States. And, you know, as is typical for that sort of event and circumstance, sometimes there's a change in policy or interpretations of policies on a number of fronts. But you know, as you and I are going to chat a little bit about today, are we starting to see some changes or potential changes on the horizon with respect to uh, policies and regulations that impact the medical device industry. So I know there was a proposal back, gosh, I guess it was a little bit ago. I think it was actually before the transition, an HHS proposal uh, changing some classification and some exemptions for devices. So I guess, Mike, maybe a good place to start is let's talk a little bit about this proposal from Health and Human Services or HHS. Yeah, I think it's a great topic for discussion, John, and as always, thanks for the opportunity to have this important and certainly timely discussion with you and your audience. Always nice to speak with you and still getting used to seeing one another. So uh, I know. Uh, thanks, thanks for that. So first of all, this idea of reclassifying existing medical devices, as you know, John, it's certainly not a new idea. This is something that FDA has been doing for many, many years, even decades. Occasionally, FDA will downclassify devices or even less commonly will upclassify devices as more and more information is gained about those products. So that's absolutely not a new idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, FDA is now required under the 21st Century Cures Act to reevaluate the classification of medical devices every five years. So I think overall, that's a good thing. Be able to 
um, make adjustments in our level of regulation in a wide variety of products as additional information is gained. In this particular case, however, I think it's the way that it was done that's most right. interesting to me. And specifically, as you mentioned, in January, January 15th, to be precise, apparently Department of Health and Human Services, literally in the days uh, before the previous administration left office, made this announcement about declassifying many medical devices without consulting the FDA first. Wow. Now think about that, John. Changing medical device classification whether we're going down or up, doesn't matter, without notifying or consulting the folks that are responsible for evaluating these medical devices. I mean, you know, politics aside, John, it's hard to connect those dots. I mean, what sense does that make? And so as a result, this whole initiative, this whole reclassification is currently on hold pending a review, which is, I think, a good thing. It's part of the more broad regulatory freeze that the current administration has put on all of the uh, um, latest changes that the previous administration tried to put into effect before leaving offices. But I think it's also important not to overgeneralize their job. Yeah. And there's just one more thing I'd like to add, and then I'd love to hear your two bits on this as well. What kind of devices are we talking about here? Well, in general, we've got seven class one devices, all gloves, by the way, and 83 class two devices, which include things like PPEs, personal protective equipment, thermometers, you know, so I don't know about you, John, but you don't have to have a PhD in biomedical engineering, which, by the way, I do have, to appreciate that gloves and thermometers and other forms of PPE, these are not, you know, the, the most complicated kind of products in the world. That's right. But in this same category of downclassifying devices, we also have devices or components of devices like imaging systems, like infusion pumps, like ventilators. Once again, John, and I don't mean to be overly facetious here, but it should not take a PhD in biomedical engineering or an RAC after somebody's name to appreciate that maybe it doesn't make sense to lump gloves and thermometers into the same category as infusion pumps and ventilators. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of interesting tangents that we can go off on this topic, John. I laid down a few. Feel free to pursue whichever you think are of interest to you and in in our audience. Well, I think that was an interesting thing to me, like a bit of a kind of echo your sentiment. When I read this proposal, I mean, some of those like, yeah, okay, that certainly makes sense. Gloves, thermometers, PPE. Uh, okay, I can see those products being exempt. But when you throw in things like ventilators and infusion pumps i mean oh my goodness this is uh these are life supporting life sustaining type products and it's like that seems weird to me and i guess as i was reading it i was wondering you know does this have some sort of connection to the all the eua products that have been cleared and, and most many of these products were popular so to speak from an eua perspective and i was curious you know is, is there something some sort of motivating factor or influence, a connection, if you will, for these products that are proposed by HHS being exempt and those that have EUA. Do you think there's any sort of connection or am I like grasping at something that may or, may or not be connected? On the contrary, John, I think there's definitely a connection. Many of these products are COVID-related products. In other words, they're products that are very important in this 
COVID pandemic that we're living through. Hopefully we're approaching the end of, but we're certainly still living through it. And it's very true, as you and I have talked about before, John, and and I said it to one of my customers earlier this morning when it comes to, uh, we have a device on the market now under an EUA, and now we're following up with a 510K so that the company can keep the product on the market once the EUA times out, when the pandemic is deemed over by the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Simply put, the level of evidence, the regulatory burden, if you will, to obtain an EUA, an emergency use authorization, is much, much lower than it is for a conventional clearance or approval. That is a 510K or de novo or a PMA. As it should be, because these products were put onto the market, you know, to meet the specific immediate needs of the emergency. And so all of this, John, is under current review or reevaluation under this regulatory freeze, which is obviously to most people, it sounds like a political move. And of course it is. But this happens a, with every, the regulatory freeze happens with every administration change. Well, that's, that's one of the points I was going to make, John. That's exactly right, is that, and, and that it does set up an interesting precedent because every time a new administration comes in, could they, should they implement a regulatory freeze to reevaluate you know, the changes of the previous administration? As a matter of fact, John, I take that maybe even a step further. I think it's a good idea to do that, but not for political reasons, even if there's not a change administration. I think we should be constantly reevaluating the changes or the proposed sure. changes that we make. And here's a perhaps a, an irony on that you more than anybody will appreciate as you know one of the biggest gurus on the quality side of the world that I know, and that is isn't evaluating changes or the potential for changes, in this case, in a medical device, always a good thing? In other words, isn't it ironic that one of the quality requirements in a QMS is to have a change management system where before you actually implement a change, you have to evaluate that change to make sure it doesn't impact safety, efficacy, performance, yada, yada, yada. So I find it interesting, John, this is just yet another example, and we've talked about other examples before, where we don't seem to practice what we preach. For sure. That is, we have regulatory, or in this case, quality requirements that apply to our products, to our devices, but we, they don't seem to apply to the processes that we use to regulate them. And, and it, I don't it, know about you, John, but I think that's a pretty big irony to me. It, it's ahead. huge irony. And usually in normal uh, everyday circumstances, I'm a, a huge fan of irony and, and sarcasm, at least in forms of humor. <laughs> but uh, in this case, it is curiously ironic. Uh, it's not surprisingly ironic. I mean, in addition to what you mentioned, you know, generally whenever we as med device company make a change, we have to assess the impact, evaluate that change before implementing that change. The other thing we need to do is monitor the change after it goes into effect to to basically verify its effectiveness. And this is one of those scenarios where, you know, nothing like that is happening from a regulatory body perspective, regardless of if it's FDA or outside the United States. This is just not how regulatory bodies operate. As a matter of fact, John, I'll give you another quick example of how we don't practice what we preach. And that is in my recent presentation that Greenlight invited me to do as part of your, the MDRs, one of the things that I pointed out is we have a lot of changes or proposed changes going into effect in the EU. The question is, what evidence do we have that these changes will do any good? In other words, one of the things that I pointed out in my presentation is 
at the end of the day, if all of these changes that we're talking about, or in some cases even have already implemented in the EU, or even changes here in the United States, if they don't ultimately translate into safer and more effective products two years from now, five years, from, 10 years from now, without being overly cynical, John, isn't this a colossal waste of time and money? And in fact, yeah. isn't it a tremendous source of job security for the regulatory folks and the notified bodies. That's being really cynical, John, but of course there cannot be any truth to that, could there? Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, it is. Uh, we're, 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 going, we're going for the fringes here, John. No, we are, for sure. <laughs> I should have I warned you. <laughs> but no, it is interesting though. I mean, th there's this perception. I don't know where it comes from. I mean, it's, you know, maybe it's in this, uh, I know this is what I'm about to say is borderline um, polarizing depending on perception, but may, is this all fake news? You know, is, is this in that category too, where, you know, like what is wrong with the medical device industry? Is there anything wrong? Is this perception that we need more and more and more regulations to govern? But then here's, a, and you know, to use the ironic twist, here we have this proposal from HHS that did not consult FDA, doesn't seem like they consulted the industry making some broad sweeping proposals on on making certain devices exempt some that you know frankly sh shouldn't be exempt from any sort of submission so there's this this just doesn't make any sense well let's try to make some sense out of this john because on one hand you know i'm sure that it's you know a certain amount of skepticism or perhaps even cynicism is appropriate but uh, but more importantly i want this to be a realistic discussion. I want this to be an open and honest dialogue. So some of the companies that I work with that are current customers of mine, they have products in the areas that HHS is proposing to downregulate. In a couple of cases, the companies have submitted feedback to the agency because they want feedback on this, discouraging them from implementing these changes. Yeah. And But the question is why? The answer that the company provided to the FDA had everything to do with safety and efficacy and so on. Right. But I'll be honest with you, John, one of the things I appreciate about our forum is we get to talk about, or let me not put you on the spot here, I get to talk about things in a certain specific detail, but at the same time, not mentioning company names or specific products. So let's talk about what the real reason why these couple of companies, two in particular customers of mine, want FDA not to do this. Not because of safety and efficacy, that's a side benefit, but the primary reason because of the competitive advantage. For sure. They view having to do a 510K, whether it's justified or not, as a competitive advantage. In other words, if another company can bring a similar product onto the market without having to jump through the hoops of 510K, then that would be a significant advantage to the competitor in a perhaps a disadvantage. So I'm not suggesting there's anything inherently wrong with that. But of course, as you can appreciate, John, when we go to the FDA to say we don't think that we should implement that change, nobody's going to be that honest and say exactly why. And in this era, you know, where everybody, including my politician friends at FDA, say, we want, you know, more communication. We want companies to come and, you know, talk to us. I hear a lot of talking going on, John. What I don't hear a lot of is actual communicating. And just because two people are talking doesn't necessarily mean they're communicating. For sure. I mean, and I, I, I can see that side of the, the discussion, you know, if, if I had a, and I can understand it, you know, if I had a product that is 
being proposed as down classified and you know when I brought this product to market whether it was last year or 10 years ago whatever the case may be I mean the burden of proof the responsibility the obligations that I had to demonstrate not that they're insurmountable but they're more significant than not having to demonstrate any of those things so I understand that from a competitive point of view that you know from some of these companies perspectives I get that and I and one other point I would like to mention, John, and I think it's a very important point, maybe even arguably the most important point in our discussion and this topic in general. Look, in my opinion, there's way too much emphasis uh, here on talking about the regulatory process. Right. In other words, whether or not you actually have to submit a 510k. Let's be honest, John, as you and I have talked about before, that's largely a matter of paperwork. For sure. What is much more important to me is from a biology and engineering perspective, did the company do what they should have done in terms of the development and the testing and so on? Whether you take that information and package it up in the form of a 510K and submit it to the FDA, or it's a class one exempt, or even if it's a wellness device, which is not evaluated by the FDA at all, it's the information itself that I think is infinitely more important than the package than the paperwork that we use to convey that information. And I would like to think, I'll take this a step further, John, and we've talked about this before as well. I would like to think that we work in an industry where people would do the things they know that they should do, or at least they should know that they do, whether they're developing a glove or a thermometer or a ventilator or an infusion pump or an artificial heart. But Unfortunately, John, I guess I just didn't fall off the turnip truck yesterday because regrettably there are some, hopefully not the majority, but there are some out there that will only do what they are absolutely required to do, what they have to do, and not one bit more. And I think, John, that's a problem. That is a problem. I mean, sometimes I have conversations with, with folks and they're like, oh, well, I'm, I'm class one. I don't have to do design controls. I don't really need a full quality system. And it just drives me crazy because, okay, technically speaking, if you have a literal interpretation of the regulations, that those may be true statements. And my response is, well, you know, things like design controls and risk management and establishing quality management system, it's all about science. It's all about demonstrating that the product is safe, that it's effective, and that it meets the indications for use. And the whole idea of proceduralizing and, and establishing processes is just a way to describe how you operate and run your business. And you know, why are these bad things? Why are these perceived as negative uh, barriers in these cases? But I suspect there are some folks who might be reading this proposal and thinking, oh, finally, we can do something carte blanche without a lot of regulatory burden and, and all these sorts of things. And I agree with you. I think that's a terrible, terrible mindset, unfortunately. I mean, we are making medical devices and these are products that are going to help improve the quality of life and in some cases may save lives. Absolutely. Me, I want to go above and beyond to make sure that that product performs when it needs to how it's supposed to, you know? Could not agree more, John. And it's funny, you mentioned the word science here. And, you know, some of the people, some of the articles that led to our discussion today proposed that, you know, the solution to this problem should be to apply regulatory science. So maybe we should move on to the last part of our discussion today yeah. and talk a little bit about what exactly is regulatory science. You've probably heard this phrase before, John. Yeah. Do you have any idea, thoughts on what is regulatory science? 
if there is such a thing? It is a little bit of a head scratcher to me. I mean, take the adjective off. I mean, science, I understand that for sure. But what is the regulatory science? That one was a little bit of a conundrum for me, to be quite honest. So what is your take on this term and and why is it meaningful or is it meaningful? Well, so let me start out by saying as an adjunct professor at a number of universities, including some Ivy League schools, I started out by consulting what is the absolute authority here, and that is Wikipedia. So here is what Wikipedia, and I hope everybody appreciates my not so sort of use of humor. I got worried for a second there because you weren't laughing immediately. I had water. I didn't want to spit it out on the camera. So. So here's what Wikipedia says regulatory science is. Regulatory science is the science of developing new tools, standards, and approaches to evaluate the efficacy, safety, quality, and performance of medical products in order to assess benefit risk and facilitate a sound and transparent regulatory decision-making process. That's what Wikipedia says is regulatory science. Okay. Now, I'm not saying I agree with that or not. I just have a couple of observations. First of all, isn't what I just said, isn't that the overall purpose of the entire regulatory process? In other words, isn't that why we go through a pre-approval process for a class one exempt registration or a 510k or de novo or DMA? And further, isn't that exactly why we were supposed to, as part of our post-approval process, once our product is on the market, keep an eye on our device or for that matter, our drug while it's on the market? So what is unique about this idea of regulatory science that we haven't been doing or at least supposed to be doing for decades. Yeah, That's point number one. The next point in this question of what is regulatory science, is there such a thing as regulatory science? I've taught over the years in more than a dozen different regulatory science programs at the graduate level. And unfortunately, the way a lot of people, certainly not everybody, and certainly not me, but the way a lot of people approach regulation, as you and I have talked about before, John, and I think they approach quality like this as well, following the regulation like a recipe, executing lines of code like a computer, one after another after another, without ever stopping and asking, does this recipe, does this code, does this process make sense? Right. Now, to me, John, I don't know how we can argue that something is a science or a scientific process if we're just simply following steps like a recipe without thinking. I don't know, is it just me, John, or how do we connect those dots? Well, I mean, to me, I mean, when I hear science, I mean, I I don't remember what grade it was in, but one of the first ideas that pops into my brain is the scientific method. And, you know, and I'm not going to uh, regurgitate this verbatim or, or exactly, I'm probably going to live, leave some of the stages of the scientific method out, but you, know, you formulate a hypothesis and you conduct experiments to prove or disprove your hypothesis, and then you iterate and you learn. To me, that's like what science is, right? To your point, this doesn't sound like science. Uh, in many cases, this sounds like, okay, which process is applicable? Okay, and then I'm going to you know, kind of to your point, follow blindly going through this checklist sort of mentality. Back to something I think you said earlier, the method by which I get to market from a regulatory perspective, for all intents and purposes, is sort of irrelevant. You know, it's the vehicle by which, you know, the the regulatory agency needs the information presented to them. But the science that I go through to get my product there, that methodology is irrespective of 
classification or that regulatory vehicle, in, in my opinion. I could not agree more with you, John. I mean, I, I think, once again, you and I are singing the exact same song, just maybe in a slightly different key. But we're definitely singing the same song here. To me, rather than using the word science, I like to think about it like a process, and more specifically, like a thinking process. Right. And so, bottom line, do we need regulatory science? In my opinion, absolutely yes. No question about it. But do we practice regulatory science? <laughs> Once again, in my opinion, absolutely not. Yeah. And by the way, it, I take no pride in saying this about our industry, you know, not just people working in companies, but when I hear people in regulatory agencies, whether it's the FDA or some other part of the world, because as you know, John, I do business with companies all over the world. And somebody tells me to do something for no other reason, and this is what the rule says on the piece of paper, yeah. with no justification, certainly no justification based on engineering or biology. To me, John, that's not science. That's nuts. So you asked me at the beginning, what is regulatory science? I gave you the Wikipedia definition. Yeah. Now let me give you, for what it's worth, my truth definition okay. of regulatory science, which is nothing new to you and to our audience that have heard us talk about before. It's one of the many important things that differentiates my approach to regulatory compared to somebody to many others. And that is, I always begin with the biology and the engineering first. For sure. And then we consider the regulation after that which when you think about it, John, is the opposite, is the antithesis of the way that most people play this game. For sure. Most people, they go right to the regulation. What does the regulation require? Step one, step two, step three, and so on. In my opinion, that is totally, pardon my French, back-ass words, yeah. right? We wanna begin with the biology. First, I say to my customers all the time, if you can convince me, never mind as a regulatory consultant, but as a professional biomedical engineer, on the merits of your biology and the engineering. In other words, if the biology and the engineering makes sense, don't worry about the regulatory. For we'll sure. figure out how to make the regulatory work, but the biology and the engineering have to, be, have to work first. That's where this should begin. That's my definition of regulatory science. Yeah. And one step further, you know, there's an adage I'm sure you've heard frequently in medicine, the surgery went perfectly, but the patient died anyway. Well, the engineering equivalent, we designed our medical device perfectly, but the patient died anyway. The regulatory equivalent, we followed the regulation perfectly. That is, we did all that FDA or Health Canada or whoever it is asked us to do, and yet the patient died anyway. The reason why this happens more frequently than some people would like to think, in my opinion, is because we are not using regulatory science. We are not beginning with the biology and the engineering first. Right. With the regulation first, and in my opinion, John, maybe some people might disagree, but in my opinion, that's a big mistake. I, yeah, and, and this is a thought that's been on my mind for for some time. Um, so I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm going to throw you off the, uh, too much with this, but you know, there's been you know for as long as you and I have known each other, probably even longer than that. There's you know the whole five ten k vehicle has often been called into question and there's been you know uh, attempts here and there to sort of repackage or iterate on and i'll use their quotes iterate on the 510k vehicle and you know so many people do get hung up on oh it's it's going to be a class three and require pma blah 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 and, you know, you and I have talked at, at length in the past about, you know, there, there, there might be some strategic benefits for PMAs and de novos and things like that. But so many people in this industry are st so stuck on that. 
Yep. It's like, would the industry benefit from removing all of those things? You know, just who cares, you know, um, what they're called and what the vehicle is. Demonstrate the burden of proof on, uh, is on you from a biology and an engineering perspective. Make your case. Who cares what you call it at the end of the day? Just demonstrate that. You know, make, get the focus back where it needs to be. You know, John, that's a very interesting idea. And I think there's a lot of merit to that idea. And, you know, the way you phrase it, who cares what you call it? Shakespeare said exactly the same thing, but in a slightly more elegant way. He said, a rose by any other name still smiles as sweet. And this goes back to what I said earlier. Whether you call it class one exempt, whether you call it a 510K, whether you call it a de novo or a PMA, or you call it a CE mark or anything else, at the end of the day, it's the work that goes into yeah. it, the content that's most important. But on the more pragmatic side, John, here's an interesting statistic for you that I just came across recently, and I haven't had a chance to fact check it uh, completely myself, but it was published in an article. But let me ask you this question, John. Comparatively speaking, how long do you think it takes FDA to evaluate a 510K as opposed to a PMA? I'm going to guess a PMA is probably um, at least two, probably three times longer for, for FDA review. Good guess. It's actually quite a bit more than that. According to these statistics, according to these statistics, and again, I need to fact check them, but they were published in, in one fairly reputable source, not Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, but according to this particular source, FDA takes 20 hours to evaluate a 510K, whereas 1,200 hours to evaluate a PMA. Wow. 20 hours for a 510K as opposed to 1,200 hours for a PMA. If you do the arithmetic, John, and I did this just to confirm, 60 times longer, six zero times longer to evaluate a PMA than a 510K. Now, to be fair, John, whether it's 30 times longer or 60 times longer or whatever it is, do you think that's a bad thing? Because let's remember that PMAs, we're talking obviously class three devices, often, certainly not always, life-supporting or life-sustaining devices. In other words, often, not always, if the device works, the patient lives. If the device doesn't work, they die. In the class two universe for 510K and de novos, some devices fit into that category of life or death, but most do not. So I guess when people you know, in industry complain about the burden that a PMA imposes over, say, a 510K or even a Novo. The question is, is that a bad thing or perhaps should it be that way? And take it one step further, John, on the drug side of the world, if drug companies made that same argument that an NDA is too much work, we would never in a million yeah. years have a new drug on the market. Right. So I think that to a certain extent, John, it's become sort of a convenient excuse for yeah. our industry to blame the increased regulatory burden of a PMA over a 510K when, you know, overall, I think that's the way that it should be. Yeah. What do you think, John? I mean, it seems like 20 hours is light from a 510K perspective, but nonetheless- That's what it seems to me, but that's the statistics that yeah. were reported here. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, to your point, I mean, we are, and I, and I think that's the important thing about this is I, I hope uh, regulatory agencies are spending more time on riskier products and devices and technologies. I, I hope so, right? Because you know, that's, that's the idea is the biology, the engineering, the science that went into those should be more complicated than something that's a little less or, or, or that's you know, more or less benign or, 
or sort of, sort of passive from a product perspective? Well, not to belabor the, the conversation, John, because I know we do need to, to wrap this up, but one of the ideas that I floated in one of our podcasts, I think probably a couple of years ago now in the PMA world, when we were talking about the PMA, you know, in the class two and below universe, we separate the me twos, the, the five, 10 Ks from the truly new and novel. We call those de novos. In the PMA world, we make no similar designation, between uh, differentiation between the two. In other words, let's be honest, John, even in the PMA world, there are a heck of a lot of me twos. Correct. A heck of a lot of me too's and very, very few new novel PMAs. So does it make sense if this statistic that I shared a moment ago is accurate, that it takes 1,200 hours for FDA to evaluate PMA 60 times longer than a 510K? Does it make sense to apply 1,200 hours of resources to a me too PMA as opposed to newer novel PMA? In other words, yeah. we yeah. have some other type of PMA for me too, call it a 510k PMA if you want. <laughs> anyway, you, you understand the point that I'm trying to make. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, in a, in a sense, I must create a different vehicle within the PMA bucket, I guess. Um, I want to apply the most resources. I want to apply, and this is my interpretation of regulatory science. I want to apply the most resources to the products that need it. Exactly. Not the products that don't. And if we don't do that, isn't it an oxymoron to even have a conversation about regulatory science? <laughs> well, Something to uh, think about. Mike, uh, thrilling conversation. I mean, you know, we don't often dive into to the, the politics of things. And I guess we didn't really hear either Nonetheless, um, we did talk a, a little bit about some of the, the ramifications when politicians get involved with uh, establishing new proposals and policies in this industry without consulting the regulatory experts and, and regulatory bodies and agencies. So certainly kind of fascinating. Um, I, I guess to kind of wrap things up today, do you think this HHS proposal has a snowball's chance of moving forward? Well, I think it does have, uh, because I think it is. I mean, as we talked about, you know, we have this regulatory hold while we're reevaluating. Um, in terms of the specific devices that are being proposed to be downclassified, I really think that it's inappropriate or even flat out dangerous yeah. to talk about them in a ubiquitous sense. I think we have to go case by case by case. I think, as we talked about before, John, yeah. it doesn't make sense to consider, you know, gloves and thermometers in the same category as ventilators and infusion pumps. For sure. So my response, I would like to think in, you know, FDA will actually do this is they will go through this list and parse this list one after another and ask, does this one make sense to be downclassified? Yes or no. Does the next one make sense to be downclassified? Yes or no. Once again, John, not to beat a dead horse here, but if there is such a thing as regulatory science, then that's the way that it should be practiced, yeah. not, not lumping everything together. All right. Well, Mike, I appreciate your insights on this. And folks, stay tuned. And certainly if there's any updates on this or any other regulatory matters, uh, you know, we'll, we'll discuss it uh, and, and the ramifications uh, of such decisions 
on the Global Medical Device Podcast, and there's a very good chance that Mike Drews from Vascular Science will be the person that I'm chatting with about it, because as you've heard me say before, no one understands this and applies, um, I would say logic. I think that's a, a fair way, uh, a logical approach to this, because I think a lot of the, the methodologies and a lot of what you're going to hear from other regulatory consultants, quite frankly, is the opposite of, of logical. It's very methodical, but not in a way that, that uses their noggin. So if you want somebody that, that uses their brain to think about this uh, in a way that's refreshing and, and unique, but to your advantage as a medical device company, that I want to encourage you to reach out to Mike Drews uh, with Vascular Sciences. Thank you, John. How about this last tidbit? Yeah. The opposite of logic is regulation. <laughs> All right. Well, well, and good regulation should always be based on logic. And if the regulation is not logical, then I'm sorry, it's not good regulation. We should not. Yeah. Amen. For sure. Folks, thank you so much for listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. And hopefully you've been enjoying the video aspect of that. If you are watching on YouTube or other sources of video, be sure you subscribe and click the notification so that you know you can get uh, informed of when the new uh, episodes are live and, and ready to consume. So thank you so much. As always, this is your host and founder, I'm Green Light Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Music